So, pronounce <clears throat> to all of you, good morning again. Um, very fortunate to, fortunate to be able to share after such a comprehensive experience through the Umadras Prabhu's exposition and all of your heartfelt presentation. So you have lots of blessings and powerful um, vulnerability in my backdrop, so I feel secure, safe enough to make the hopefully next following quantum leap. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I, I, I'm supposed to talk about Guru Tattwa, and I think I will, but <laughs> oops. <laughs> the environment speaks for itself, yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit like it's okay, no problem. But yeah, after after going through today's yesterday's uh, presentation and today in the morning, uh, and seeing how many of you were opening your heart and expressing so many important points, I was kind of like, okay, I'm, I've been tempted to talk about unconditional love, and I'm tempted to talk about all the things that you are presenting, and I was realizing, oh, this is so, so important for all of you, and for me included. So I was kind of doubting, but eventually I came to realize, yeah, okay, we're going to talk about Guru Tattva in connection to all those things as well, because ideally the principle of, of, of Sri Guru is, has to do with the principle of unconditional love, uh, embodied, personified, coming to our lives, the experience of that unconditional acceptance, unconditional giving, um, vulnerability, mm -hmm. because disciple has to be vulnerable and the guru has to know what to do with the vulnerability. And for that, the guru has to be vulnerable as well. As we mentioned yesterday, you cannot be vulnerable and the other person remain non-vulnerable in your vulnerability. The result of that will be abuse. <laughs> Or dysfunction of some type. So, so yeah, today and tomorrow, uh, I, I would like to share a few words uh, on Guru Tattva. Divamada presented that as Guru Tattva approaches pitfalls and potentials. <laughs> so let's try to navigate a little bit about, about in that connection, in that particular ocean, trying to talk about Guru Tattva, probably a little bit in, in not the most usual ways we used to hear that particular tattoo, that particular topic. And of course, and because I've already talked about this for those who have heard some series I gave a few months ago, and some devotees were like, well, Maharaj, but in your series, you are not like, like excessively praising the guru like everyone else does. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I understand the point, but I'm not... I'm praising the Guru, I'm just focusing on another particular perspective. And I already gave Guru Tattva Kata for my first 22 years doing that obsessive praise. And that's okay, but let's now balance the presentation from another perspective, which is not canceling the praise of the Guru. On the contrary, on the contrary. When we, we were talking yesterday, I think with Deva Madhava, that when, when you dare to to think what we can improve about something is not that you are being ungrateful for what you have received, but it's exactly the opposite. Because I, I fully appreciate what I received from my poor bacharyas, 
now in the present moment and wondering what can we do to upgrade their contribution. That's for me a real gratitude to them. It's not they were so great that they gave, gave us they gave us everything, so we don't need to do anything now. That's for me not praise of Purvachari. That's an insult, at least in my perspective. <laughs> so, so in that connection, I, I like to talk about Guru. Um, um, I'm trying to keep the topic of Guru and the topic of Guru-disciple relationship as realistic as we can. Because this is a topic that lends itself a lot to over-idealization and therefore to over-expectation from both directions, actually. And that can create very, very unusual uh, scenarios, so to say, to say the least. <clears throat> so whatever we'll be sharing will be, again, in the service of the relationship between guru and disciple, uh, maybe from a perspective that I like to call alternative orthodoxy. <laughs> Still orthodoxy, we are not here deviating from the parampara, but we are taking some alternative uh, perspectives. Now, as you were talking before today, the importance of, of shifting our perspective of things. We are not changing the thing, we are just learning to discover that multifaceted jewel yet from a new angle. That can be enough service for this lifetime. I always like to recall when one devotee asked Srila Siddhar Maharaj, Gurudev, can you give me some service? <laughs> and that's dangerous if you ask that to someone like Srila Bhaktura Plakthira Dev, because you don't know what will be the answer. Don't expect just wash the pots or something like that. So Srila Siddhar Maharaj, through, through, through his nature, he didn't say wash the pots. No? So he replied, change your angle of vision. That was a service. Can you give me some service? Yeah, of course, change your angle of vision. You have service for eternity with that one. <laughs> yeah. And when you change your angle of vision, you don't any longer need to ask for service because you will realize everything is service opportunity. <laughs> if you ask service, it means you are not seeing service opportunity. If you change your angle of vision enough, you realize Everything is a service opportunity. Everything is potential for Afarnalia to be engaged in Seva. And even the so-called problems, we learn to translate them now, service opportunity. But we choose which language to use. Again, language may seem something relative, but it's so crucial how we label reality. You label something problem, or you label some the same thing, service opportunity. It totally shifts how we are approaching everything, basically. So, <clears throat> as I sometimes mention, Guru, Guru Tattva is probably one of the most difficult tattvas to understand. And if, it, if a tattva is the most difficult to understand, means it's the easiest to misunderstand. Yeah, if something is very difficult to understand, probably it's very easy to misunderstand. So it's important that we, um, in my opinion, we engage and spend some time, not only in this seminar, but ongoing, on an ongoing basis in, in this direction. So one of the many ways in, we, in which we can misunderstand, misrelate to this department of revelation, of course, the classical one, which someone will say, okay, the guru is an, 
if a guru is a genuine agent, so if a guru is a bona fide guru, again, it may seem like a redundant clarification, as we were talking these days, radical personalism. Yeah, personalism is radical. No need to clarify that. Which was the other one? Devotee care. Devotee care. I mean, but yes, we need to clarify. So proper many times will say bona fide guru. And he says, no, actually a guru is bona fide by definition. But sometimes in the name of guru, we have some unbona fide layers going on. So we need to sometimes create some clarification. So of course, if the guru is genuine, it will be improper to consider that person an ordinary human being, so to say. But also another way of <clears throat> misrelating to the Guru Tato will be, as I mentioned before, to over-idealize uh, the Guru or over-idealize the relationship and develop over-expectations on the basis of that. And that can happen from both directions. Not only the disciple may over-idealize the Guru, but the guru can also over-idealize what the disciple is expected to do in service to him. So it's, it's delicate because both of them, guru and disciple, can enter into an over-expected, over-idealized relationship, and that's not pretty very realistic, basically. I personally witnessed a number of cases in these directions, hundreds, I won't say thousands because I've not counted, but probably <laughs> in in which these dynamics played out. So that's why I personally feel, okay, I have some experience in that with all the scars that implies. I have some scars and some scars as well <laughs> in that connection. Uh, and I've written a little bit about that in my, in my recent book on radical personalism. I feel like I have to make minimum one chapter on this. So I call it issues and tissues between guru and disciple. And then I came to realize when I say tissues, I remained like I meant like layers, but some people thought tissues like <laughs> because many of those issues require some tissues. Although <laughs> I didn't think about that. That was a good one. Also. So now I'm including to the meaning of that chapter also issues and tissues between Guru and disciple. I will be quoting a few sections from that with your permission or without it, so to say. <laughs> So, of course, in one, in one sense, there is no limit to how much we can glorify the Guru, how much we can glorify Guru. In one sense, there is no limit. But at the same time, there is a possibility of over-glorification. Try to get the difference between these two things. In one sense, there is no limit to how much you can properly and accurately glorify Guru, Guru Tattva, but also there is the possibility of over-glorifying the guru. Dave is not getting it yet. Okay, thanks for your honesty. I'm reading your face in this moment. No. Over-glorification, over-idealization. If I say, okay, to give an example. No? I think you understood the first part. No? There's no limit how much we can glorify the principle of Sri Guru, the mercy of Sri Guru, and so on and so forth. But you can over-glorify your guru, saying like, He's so incredible that he's omniscient. He's omniscient. Okay. Origin of the three worlds. He's yeah. He's he can do things that Krishna cannot do. He's so incredible that he's better than all the other gurus in the world put together. No? <laughs> so that's over glorification. You have gone too far. 
That's too much. <laughs> your guru is not Krishna. Your guru is not, and that doesn't mean your guru is less or is wrong. But just there is an art to praise. It's not that praise is just some emotional catharsis and you say whatever comes through you and, and you are offending others and disrespecting others' faith and making Krishna, Guru Krishna, which is basically Mayabad. <laughs> so in that sense, I'm saying there is a possibility of over-glorification. Too many other possibilities like that. Prabhupada was so incredible, we can cancel the parampara right there. No need for further gurus. That's over-glorification. That goes against Prabhupada's own instruction, basically. Again, it may, it may come from a sincere heart, from a genuine wish to glorify, but it may be a very unrefined expression that goes somehow against the proper way of praise. In fact, technically speaking, if you over-glorify your guru, according to Sila Prabhupada himself, that, that's an, an insult. It's not only over-glorification, but it's an insult. Let me, let me read what he says, literally. I quoted him in my book. This is in page... What the okay. This is this comes from his purpose, just in case you doubt he said that. <laughs> chapter, Canto 4, chapter 15, verses 23 and 24 of the Bhagavatam. So Prabhupada says... If a man who does not factually possess the attributes of a great personality engages his followers in praising him with the expectation that such attributes will develop in the future, that sort of praise is actually an insult. <laughs> Why are you laughing there, man? <laughs> okay. This is circular reasoning. It doesn't matter. You're laughing because of the part with the expectation that yeah. those attributes will come in the future. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> of course, this, this quote probably saying the guru is engaging the followers, the people is engaging the followers. Come on, praise me in this particular way. No? So someday I developed that stuff. He doesn't say that to them. He says that to himself. But so, over-idealize me, basically. Of course, that's one thing. Another thing is if a guru may have disciples who over-idealize him, but the guru is not promoting that. But nonetheless, it can happen. I mean, it will happen, for sure. I mean, if, if someone eventually has to serve in the capacity of guru, you have to know that you will have lots of beginner people who will just make too much of you, more than what you actually are. And the guru has to be, how to say, sober enough as to first know that will happen, that such a thing will happen, to know how to navigate such an ocean of kijais. As oh. <laughs> I like to put it. You know? I mean, I've never served in that capacity, but just for the mere fact of being a sannyasi, you can imagine I receive a good dose of kijais uh, per week, per month, per day. You know? So I have to remain relatively sober not to drown in that ocean basically not, not to, or, or not to think or not to believe the things that some people think about me just because you are a sannyasi you are, you are descending from somewhere and you are necessarily better than those who do not wear this fancy color it's not like that but some people believe that there comes more rush everyone to the floor that's delicate. I mean, that it's, I'm joking. I'm talking in, in tragic comical language, but 
it's delicate. You enter a room and everyone is on the floor. I mean, it's like, oops. I mean, the only option for me is I have to go to the floor immediately <laughs> to remain sober and so on and so forth. <clears throat> Where everyone is talking in a room and I enter, everyone becomes silent. <laughs> That's so frustrating, I can tell you. Just in case, <laughs> in case you see me entering the room, you continue speaking. Yes. Or even worse, you're doing Kirtan, Mahara Center Kirtan stops. <laughs> Scripture says, the center of the greatest devotees, he enters the room and everyone begins Kirtan. <laughs> I enter the room, everyone stops Kirtan. So you can have a glimpse who's talking to you now. <laughs> so don't over-idealize me, please. Because also over-idealizing over anyone goes beyond sannyasi, guru, whomever, if you over-idealize someone, you are dehumanizing that person. You are, you are taking that person out of the situation in which the person actually is and making that person something else. Not something more, something less will be actually. No? Because I'm, I'm, I'm basically telling you, I don't care for who you are. I want you to be what I want you to be for me. No? And you say, no, no, but I'm not that. Kijai, kijai, kijai. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just an object and an instrument of your need for objectifying me and making me a superhero or whatever. So, that's another variety of impersonalism to over idealize someone. Because I'm saying, I don't care for you as a person. I, I, I'm not willing to deal with the messiness and complexity of where you may be now as an individual. I just want you to be a over idealized perfect superhero for me. So I don't have to enter into complexity in that. So that's again dehumanizing, depersonalizing, impersonalism. <clears throat> and of course, in connection to someone serving in the capacity of guru, that can happen, can happen so much. Sometimes guru is seen as a as a celebrity instead of a sadhu, basically. You know, sometimes seen as a an, as a rock star, instead of a, of a genuine elder, a venerable elder, or sometimes it's seen as a, as, say, as a superhero instead of a human being. Because guru is still human. There are degrees of gurus, and we'll talk about that, but it's a human being. And it's, it's not a problem to be a human being, just in case. <laughs> We can repeat it 108 times during this retreat. Now, there is not a problem being human being. You can be fully human. Remember, Krishna is fully human and Krishna is fully divine. If you take full humanity from Krishna, you no longer have Madhuri Lila. The, the sweetness of the Braja Lila totally lost. If you take humanity away from the Lila, you no longer can have Lila. <laughs> so... <clears throat> So yes, as Jagan Prabhu mentioned, one of the ways sometimes we project this over-idealization is Gurudev is, you say omniscient? Omniscient, no? So the Guru is or infallible also, infallible. He cannot make any mistakes. Now this is a famous situation where Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta was giving a lecture and he mispronounced a word. And all the words were like, the dictionary has to be changed from now on. 
We have just received the latest revelation that this word from now on is to be pronounced in this way. It's pure Shabda Brahman, uninterrupted revelation. So you don't say harmonium anymore, you say whatever. However, Prabhupada may have said harmonium. I don't think there were harmonium at that time with the Gaudiya Millennium. You get my point. And one devotee proposed that. And we have to change. I mean, this is not a joke. They say that seriously. They say, we have to change the dictionary. And all the votes were like, yeah, not such Gurunista. That's real appreciation of the glory of our Guru there. And Srila Siddhar Maharaj again appeared on the scene. And he was like, <laughs> he said, that's the mentality of a neophyte. That's a fanatic. If you are progressive, you will acknowledge that mistake, which is a mild mistake. It's not compromising your guru's standing, <laughs> mispronunciation. And you will acknowledge the mistake in service of your guru. So that's a higher service than just denying all possibility of mild mistakes in the name of absolutizing even the relative. Because the danger is when you absolutize the relative, you end up relativizing the absolute many times. Anyhow, that can happen. We can think Gurudev is infallible. He can commit no mistakes, and that that's a big problem. And of course, that speaks about our lack of willingness sometimes of dealing with imperfection. <laughs> now we need to have something extremely over-idealized, because if you make a mild mistake, my whole faith edifice starts to crash, and it's like, no, no, it's okay. There is charm in imperfection. I mean, go to Krishna Lila. Our God is a liar, a thief, a womanizer. <laughs> In the context of Lila, he's divine, transcendent, but all the things are all imperfections are there. <clears throat> and those imperfections make Krishna especially charming. You go to Narayan, he's too perfect for us, Gaudias, with all respect, but that will be kind of boring. But Krishna <clears throat> exhibits all these nuances. Vulnerability, fragility, imperfection, limitation. Damodar Lila for me is like that. That's the very first thing I, I heard from Krishna in my life. Reading from Joseph Campbell, one book, where he was narrating Damodar Lila. <laughs> and with my friend, another friend of mine, we were like, who is this Krishna? I mean, is God tied to a mortar? That's a very counterintuitive idea. God tied. You, you think the, the opposite. He's beyond all bonds. <laughs> He's literally tied. But interestingly, as you know, in the Dhamma Lila, Krishna's being tied. But his freedom increases in limitation. Why? Because the more he's tied by Yashoda, the more the loving interaction between the two of them is increasing. So the more your love increases, the more your freedom increases. So Krishna is increasing his freedom the more he's tied. So that was for me like, okay, welcome to the world of paradoxes here. <laughs> so anyhow, all this to say there is charm and fallibility and mistakes on certain level. There is this, this, and that's an invitation for us to show unconditional love also. Because if you tell your guru, I only love you as long as you are perfect. Basically, you're telling, I'm not willing to offer unconditional love to you. 
I'm also only willing to offer conditional love under the condition that you are perfect. I love you. So that's very limited. That's not love. <laughs> conditional love is an oxymoron. It doesn't work together. Unconditional love. So yeah, Gurudev is infallible. No need to, to mark that box. Or Gurudev is omniscient. That's another over idealization. No, don't, there's no need to make your guru omniscient. Again, the question here is not so much is he or she, just in case, omniscient or not. The question is why you have such a need of making that person omniscient? Where's your faith that you need to make of that person? Again, more than what, what he or she needs to be, actually be. <clears throat> So no, Shastra is not supporting the idea that the Guru is infallible in every single sense. Of course, the Guru is, Guru is genuine, is infallible in terms of his pure surrender to Krishna. But there can be a chance of mild mistakes, and it's okay. Guru may not know some things. And once I remember someone asked Srila Prabhupada in one class, Srila Prabhupada, who is the Yuga avatar for Trita Yuga? And Prabhupada gave a very deep, interesting answer. He replied, I don't know. <laughs> That's it? It's okay. You can say I don't know sometimes also. But sometimes even if you are serving the capacity of guru, you may enter into this like performative role that I have to have answers to every question and I have to give perfect answers. Okay, we have perfect question, perfect answers. I'm not discounting that book. My opponent, the same main character of that book is the one who is saying I don't know. <laughs> no. And there's place for I don't know, for being honest. And, and it's a detail. Again, it's, he's not, not knowing something crucial. He said, I don't know. That's a detail. We're in Kali Yuga. Take advantage of Mahaprabhu. <laughs> Who cares for the Yuga Avatar of <laughs> With all respect, of course. But it's just like <clears throat> intellectual entertainment, so to say, distraction. No? So, again, Shastra is glorifying the Guru hyper-glorifying the guru, but never over-glorifying the guru. So there are two different things. You can find hyper-glorification as the chanting of the unending glories of the guru principle, and that's beautiful. But another thing is, again, over-glorification. That's not present in the scriptures. And something that I, I think I mentioned yesterday is that when the Shastra is glorifying the guru, it does so from the perspective of considering that the person acting as guru is perfectly serving in that capacity. So on that basis, the Shastra will glorify the guru in absolute terms and will expect absolute dedication to that principle. Taking for granted that the agent, the guru agent who is representing the guru agency is fully qualified for that to happen. Do you follow my point? Because if if you don't understand that, what if someone is representing a guru partially or in a deviated way? Say, no, but the Shastra say you have to fully dedicate to your guru. As long as the guru is fully acting as a guru. It's like a police policeman. He's representing the police department, and I have to act accordingly to the policeman as long as much as the policeman is representing the police department. <laughs> we have a corrupt policeman. I mean, the very police department will put the policeman in jail. <laughs> to give an example, no? or, or, or like an encyclopedia will describe 
like Shastra describes the guru ideally. If you go to an encyclopedia, encyclopedia will describe what an apple is. An encyclopedia will take for granted that an apple is not rotten and half beaten, but it's red and round and has this. So it will describe an ideal apple. <laughs> then you will find so many versions of apples outside of the encyclopedia, but it gives a general ideal meaning of that. So it's important to know that scriptures, when they glorify the gurus, on that basis, we are speaking about the complete full apple, so to say, the full word, the full version. And yes, we have to full dedicate ourselves to that. But in some cases, God forbid, but some may, it may happen, let's be realistic, uh, someone representing the guru department is not fully acting accordingly. In that same proportion, we are not to surrender to that lack of representation, basically. Because if not, that opens the door to abuse. And I heard so many examples of that. Like, no, but we are to surrender completely to our guru. Yes, but if your guru is asking you to lend yourself to abuse, that's not the guru. Guru Tattva talking through that person. So you shouldn't surrender to that in seva. <laughs> and probably all of you are protected from the, all that, and I, I'm so fortunate that that is going on, but... Sometimes that's not the case, so that's why I'm sharing some of these perspectives as well. No? So, so going back to the <clears throat> over-idealizing of the guru, and I'm saying this again just to keep things human, realistic, and personal. Again, if you are over-idealizing someone, that goes against radical personalism. Radical personalism is guru and disciple relate to one another as who they are from where they are, as realistically as possible. So another classical template of over-idealization, over-expectation is um, the guru must be a nitya We talk about that with Jajan a few times. You understand what do I mean by nitya Like an eternal associate of Krishna who is descending from the spiritual world. Sometimes I've heard that, although nowhere in Shastra this is mentioned. The guru needs to be a need, has to be a need to see that. And of course, you cannot measure that also. <laughs> Just to be practical. How can you know if someone is a need to see it or not? Do you have the need to see the test or something? <laughs> like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> sorry. You're not need to see. You're sadhana see the sorry. <laughs> Whatever. Hmm. Or even Nultam Bhagavat, which is the, the topmost level of devotee, not necessarily a guru, has to be on that platform. Of course, it's great if that happens. But, or sometimes we use, the, we use the term pure devotee. But sometimes that term means different things to different people. <laughs> we say, he's a pure devotee. I say, what do you mean by that? Let's clarify, because if not, we, we, have, not, we have not yet started the conversation. <laughs> so... Yeah, the guru can be a pure, what do you mean by pure devotee? If you mean, okay, someone may be a Madhyam Adhikari who is fully sincere and fully surrender, you can define what, okay, I have no problem. It's purely dedicated, purely sincere. And by the strength of that honesty, that person is on the way of becoming a pure devotee, all with capital letters, so to say. It's okay, no problem. <clears throat> but I clarify that because also, I've, I've seen in the circle of some devotees that things like if the guru is not the topmost type of devotee, then that guru is a cheater, 
or you are being cheated, and, and that's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, if, if you dare to contradict my absolutistic conclusions, you are an offender to the guru, and then we enter into the apparat neurosis chapter. That's what apparat does. <laughs> no? So many times, like, you, that's apparat, that's apparat, everyone's like, Phew frozen, like paralyzed. No, like, that's a fancy, watch out. No? So basically we cancel all many times critical thinking and discernment because that will that may be apparat. So you don't want to go there, right? You don't want to be labeled as an apparati. No? That word has historical weight, so to say. <laughs> hmm. So yeah, let's be careful of not weaponizing these terms just to prevent people from being themselves or asking questions that they need to ask but because of fear they are just intimidated about being honest which is like a, that's not what we want we don't want to give that message to people not to feel you feel intimidated about being honest it's like oh my gosh we are going in the opposite direction <laughs> because as we talk these days our traditions revolves around the bhagavatam and the Bhagavatam basically begins saying Dharma Pravitakaita Votra. So in this book, we do not embrace cheating in the name of religion. You can put it like that. Dharma completely rejecting cheating in the name of religion. But that's not so easy to not engage in cheating in the name of religion. That's my point. We can engage in a lot of that in this connection. So, so the Guru is not necessarily and need to see that again to begin with you don't have a way to test that uh, and generally need to see this are with Bhagavan in his lila wherever that's going on so probably they may not appear here and if you are feeling some discomfort by hearing me saying this now <laughs> also you can ask yourself like why do I feel discomfort and why do I need to make a guru or need to see that hmm. In one sense, one could say, I need to see that. I think we talked about that with Jai Jagna some time ago. If your guru said, need to see them, is he or she is an eternal associate who has never had experience of material conditioning. In other words, that person is not capable at all of empathizing with your own experience. That sounds charming to you? <laughs> no. Follow my point. If you have always been with Krishna from time without beginning, you, you don't know what does it mean to enter in contact with Maya Shakti. You cannot empathize with that person in a deep way, in, in, in an experiential level. And you may need that to happen with your guides, so to say. Mm -hmm. So again, need to see that asana is not something that has to be there. Once someone asks Srila Prabhupada, you may know this. <clears throat> when the Buddha came with this typical like measuring question, like, who is better, a Nita Siddha or a Sadhana Siddha? No? And Prabhupada replied again in a very brilliant way. He said, the important word there is Siddha. <laughs> Nitya Sadhana Siddha. Siddha means perfected, perfected being. Nitya Siddha is someone who is perfected forever, <laughs> from time without beginning. And Sadhana Siddha is someone who attained perfection through practice, been imperfect before, so to say. But the important word here is Sita. Mm -hmm. So no need to create a competition of who is better, who is worse. And then 
In Brihad Bhagavatamrita, Sanatana Goswami at one point seems to suggest in one way it's better to be a sadhana. The, the sadhana siddhas are better. I mean, he's not saying they are better, but he's especially praising sadhana siddhas. Why? Because they have been put to test. Their devotion was tested. Again, I'm with this, I'm not saying Yashoda is, is beyond the sadhana. I'm not saying nothing like that, but he especially highlights those who attain perfection after practice, after going through struggles. And I think, at least for me, in my personal case, many of the main things I've learned from my different mentors throughout these last decades was by witnessing their struggles. I mean, I was inspired by that. And I think we need way more of that, those types of testimonials, not, of, not only just receiving the scriptures of someone being a superhero from day one till eternity, because how can you empathize with that? No? There is no journey, there is no struggle, there's no ups and downs. It's everything lila. No? Even if there was some struggle, that was a lila. No? <laughs> so every, everything becomes lilaized. Something like that. <laughs> no. No. He had a problem. That's, that was a lila only. It's okay. No. His absolute size is untouched by that. It's always impolluted and transcendental. And it's like, oof. No. It's discouraging because you, you don't have any point of reference. No. All these people are perfect, ideal, in, from always from beginning of time. So, so it's important to relate with, with the messiness of, of the... The elders, so who now are elders, who now are even perfect beings, but they went through those chapters as I'm going now. Like, for example, we bought Bilba Mangala Thakur. I mean, I don't think Bilba Mangala Thakur is less glorious by some of the embarrassing chapters he had with prostitutes and stuff like that. For me, it adds to the glory. Oh, you, you have gone through all that and now you have become Bilba Mangala Thakur. My Kijai will go with some special. Strength there. Mm-hmm. Sorry? Pingala. Mm-hmm. One of the 24 gurus. Yeah. Yeah. It's important. I mean, Bilba Mangala Thakur in his Krishna Karnamrita, he begins offering pranam to his gurus. Mm-hmm. And basically, the first guru he offered pranam is Chintamani, the prostitute. <laughs> so again, that's like, what? No. You are praising a prostitute in your Mangala Charan. What's going on here? <laughs> but there's a place for it. <clears throat> so again, the question is not so much is the, every guru need to see then Otan Bhagavad Sadhana Siddha, but why do I have, if I have, the need of making every one of those who need to see that? Is it because of strong faith or is it because of a lack of faith? That I need you to be perfect so my faith doesn't need to work so much because you're already perfect, so I can just like hijai, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes I, I, I like to say, like some people may say, <clears throat> okay, we want the whole world to be chanting Hare Krishna. And that may sound immediately like, oh, wow, such universal compassion you have. But in many cases, not all, but in many cases, you may just want everyone to chant Hare Krishna so they confirm to you that you are in the right place. No? Oh, if everyone is doing what I'm doing, it must be I'm in the, in the correct place. I'm not enough convinced myself, but if all of you are doing it, okay, thank you for helping me to be more convinced. <laughs> you follow? So it, it can play out like universal compassion, but actually it's weak faith, you know? narcissism, and so on and so forth.
So I'm saying all this again, not to, to point at anyone. I'm not pointing at anyone. You are a narcissist. You don't have universal compassion. You all are cheaters here. Eternally damned. No, nothing like that. We already talked about unconditional love and so on and so forth. But, but also inviting all of us to, to remain vigilant about those templates, especially beginning at home, but also if they play out in some environment, to not be, to not be naive enough to just take everything like in absolute terms because sometimes when you are too naive and eventually your naivety becomes like <laughs> crushed you you jump to the extreme of cynicism and as i put in my book there is no more cynic person than the dis disillusioned naive mm. no? <laughs> yeah. huh? when you're extremely naive and you get disillusioned you become extremely cynical and of course, the idea is to find a middle point between those two, which is be a discerning person, mature, grateful, not naive, not cynical. No? Because I've seen so much of those things, seeing myself going through those motions in so many stages in my life. So, <clears throat> Of course, that other, another possibility for us to, to be in the need for us as disciples, let's say, because as you can see here, I'm not pointing only at Guru can fail in this, but also, I mean, it can happen in both ways. So we as disciples, as students, can also feel the need of, uh, of making the Guru more than what he or she is, just as a thing of personal security or, or fear or control mechanism. Like, my Guru is a pure devotee, because I know who he is. I know what's going on. I know everything is in place. I have certainty about all these situations. Uh, or sometimes the fear is thanks to the point of, okay, my guru is the best, and if my guru is the best, of course, by extension, I am the best. <laughs> so just like a natural playing out of the sequence, no? If he's the best, I mean, I'm connected with the best, I and mean, best, no? Be God's best, so here is the best as well. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we have this utilitarian vision sometimes very unconsciously, like everything is seen in utilitarian terms, like, okay, what, what serves my purpose? So the guru can also be part of that. I want, I want the shin shiniest guru. I want the best guru. So I, I can see myself in that shiniest perspective as well. But many times again, this, the, the, the background of this pattern of, of feeling this urge or this need to, to over-idealize someone, in this case, a guru, as I mentioned before, has to do with my unwillingness to offer unconditional love. I'm repeating it again because that's an important point, at least for me. If my guru is a perfect being, again, I, I don't need—I I don't need to be through many challenges because he's perfect, he's pure. Of course, the problem with that is if some mistake comes, how do I accommodate that? Because I, I have over-absolutized everything so much that if something comes, oops. So it's important that we are willing. I mean, we are receiving unconditional love for Krishna by Krishna from Krishna. Sorry, as we talked before today, Krishna is already loving us, and this is a very important point. I mentioned in one in the comment to move today in the morning, but I was tempted like I'll stop talking about Guru Tattva and just talk about unconditional love for the rest of this weekend because it's such an important point to to feel how we are already 
accepted and loved by Krishna, we don't need to make ourselves lovable to Krishna. That's neurosis. If you practice, if you conduct your practice thinking, I have to earn Krishna's love for me. In other words, Krishna doesn't like me yet. <laughs> no, or today I didn't finish my rounds. Krishna is, doesn't like me today as much as yesterday. No, this type of projections that Krishna is not that, but we are creating our own Krishna version in our mind. And we may conduct ourselves for a whole life with that misconception about who God is. <laughs> And how we should conduct ourselves in practice, you know, practice in terms of meritocracy, you know, how to deserve a, a moral worthiness contest or something like that. Mm. And no, unconditional love means no matter the condition, Krishna loves us always. And of course, again, the natural response to that, if I'm being loved unconditionally, I want to offer unconditional love in return. It doesn't make sense. You love me unconditionally, and I love you conditionally. So, so we should be willing as disciples to be to offer unconditional love to the guru. Which means mistakes may be there on some of some type. Again, I'm not saying grave mistakes are happening, abuse, extreme deviations. And I continue because I want to offer unconditional love and my guru is cheating and abusing. No, that's, I offer unconditional love. I don't think that's healthy. I'm saying that because I've seen many of those scenarios also. Like, no, I'm so indebted and I receive so much that I will allow all this abuse to happen. It's my way of paying back. And it's like, mm, not necessarily <laughs> that can be dysfunctional and traumatizing. And also another way that a disciple may unconsciously, again, all many of the things are happening in the unconscious, and that's why yesterday I appreciated that you brought back this point. I don't know if it was Jajana Deva Madhva, when we were talking about radical personalism, the idea of bringing to the conscious platform many things that are happening in the on the unconscious level. In fact, Sikshastakam begins with that, Cheto Darpana Martin. Chitta comes from chitta. Chitta means the subconscious mind. So the beginning of the first word of the whole Sikshastakam is subconscious. <laughs> Imagine. Wow. Yeah, it ends up as Lishya Bapada or no, no, unconscious. Deal with your unconscious. Do something there first. Say, like to put, go and clean your shed. Shed, you say that, that like bodega, they say also in this, you use the Spanish word here? No. Okay, the, the tools, shed, shed. Generally, we don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. We put whatever we don't know where to put this, put it in the shed, throw it there. Throw it. At one point, the shed starts to have a life of its own. <laughs> you start to hear voices coming from the shed. <laughs> <laughs> and you walk nearby, like, come open the door, come here. It's like, <laughs> and you keep throwing things at one point, there's nothing else to throw. Let's open a, open a second shed, and you start to throw more things. And, some arms come from the window. <laughs> I was like, I won't enter there ever. <laughs> but Mahaprabhu is saying, he's making us conscious of our unconscious, so to say. Remain aware there is something called that and deal with that. So one of these unconscious other reasons for, we as, for us as a disciple to feel the need to over-idealize the guru is basically as a way to avoid being responsible. What do I mean by this? 
oh Gurudev, you are so high and elevated and pure that whatever you will tell me, I will do. So if I do what you told me and it fails, it's your fault. <laughs> because I did what you told me and you are pure and perfect. So I did my part. You were wrong. <laughs> so in, in that particular system, at any point, there is a, mo a moment of I will take personal responsibility for my acts. Mm -hmm. So externally, it's, it seems like surrender. But you are using the external form of surrender to avoid the inner substance of surrender. Let me, let me read a, a brief section from the book in connection to, to another point, which is codependency. <laughs> okay, I heard, I heard a few voices in that connection. So codependency in connection to, to the guru figure and how, again, it can be masked under the label of surrender, but it can actually be a way of narcissistic, uh, using the other person basically for my personal purposes, not giving of myself voluntarily. Mm. So it says like this. Mm. Mm. In, the co in the codependent template, we give ourselves to someone else, but only with the intention that such a person feels a void we want them to feel. Externally, it seems like surrender, but internally, we are actually exploiting that person. This template often includes the idea that I need you to need me. While a guru can easily fall prey to this, a disciple can also become toxically codependent on his guru in a similar way. While a novice disciple may understandably use a codependent template in the beginning, the guru, who ideally should not be a novice his, herself, should detect this pattern and know how to deal with the disciple's initial codependency, guiding him into full-fledged maturity and freedom. However, if a guru allows or even promotes codependency in her students, then she herself is a victim of codependency. This creates a dangerous pattern where guru and disciple will be cheating and exploiting each other. Although externally it may all look like spotless surrender, they will knowingly or unknowingly be using the form of surrender to avoid the substance of surrender. So again, I'm not saying every, all relationships are like that, but it can happen. Uh, and of course, any system that is built on codependencies will collapse. Every codependent relationship is destined to collapse by nature. And of course, nobody wants to, to go through that. So, so going back one moment to the idea that I mentioned before, uh, why this measuring of my guru needs to be, need to see the Uttam Bhagavad, pure devotee. Again, how much we can measure that Actually, the real focus should be the depth of my inquiry. That's my duty as a disciple. I have to have full faith. If I'm deeply Gignasha Shreya Uttamam, Uttivata, and described, that's the duty of the disciple. You have to comprehensively inquire into your highest possible good as much as you can conceive it. Uh, that's your duty. Be deep in your inquiry. 
and trust that Krishna will correspond with that depth of inquiry and send you a particular person to nourish that inquiry you're having, that thirst. Mm. That's precisely what the Chaitya Guru comes into, into, into play. You, know? you are praying for a certain, in a certain level of inquiry and the Chaitya Guru takes note of that and, and create, makes the arrangement for a particular Guru to come into your life. So Krishna will make the necessary arrangement to send you whatever guru is healthy for your particular level of thirst. It may be a Nitisida, it may be a Sadhana Sida, it may be not a Sida, it may be a Madhyam, advanced Madhyam Bhakta. It's okay. I'm trying to normalize some of the things because sometimes I've seen that they are traumatized in terms of instead of normalized. Mm -hmm. If you want even to take this, this case further, and it, if you go to verse 5 of Upadeshamrita, Srila Prabhupada mentions in the commentary that Kanishta Bhakta can be a guru. Mm -hmm. Which is like, whoops, when I read that, I said, wow, I thought, okay, Madhyam Bhakta, but even Kanishta is mentioned here. <laughs> which, of course, the idea will be even if the guru is a Kanishta, Hopefully, it's a Kanishta of a higher caliber than the Kanishta disciple. No? And hopefully, the two of them are so sincere that when the Kanishta means, you're asking, what's Kanishta? Yeah, I'm reading the, the, the gestures there. So we have this, in general, these three, I mean, there are not only three levels of being a devotee. It's just a very generalized way of defining Kanishta, Madhyam, and Uttam. So we will be like beginner, intermediate, and advanced. So, Srila Prabhupada said, Guru can be even a Kanishta. Of course, there are levels of Kanishta. Sometimes they say Kanishta, 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 Madhyam, Kanishta, Uttam, and so on and so forth, and many more in between. So, the point I will say when I read that, I thought, okay, if the Guru is a Kanishta, it should be a Kanishta Madhyam or a Kanishta Uttam. <laughs> and the disciple will be a Kanishta, Kanishta, will be more, because, I mean, doesn't make much sense that your guru is less advanced than you. It's like you go to university and you know more than all the teachers. It's like, you know, generally, you have to look up for an elder that will instruct you and is more advanced. So, so my point is, even if the guru is the Kanishta on that level and, and the disciple is a little below, of course, if the disciple advances, one will say, okay, he will reach his guru, but the idea is that the guru is also advancing. So when the Disciple reaches Kanishta Madhyam, the Guru is Kanishta Uttam. So in that way, the two of them are advancing together and accompanying each other in their progress. There is place for that. There is place for that. Remember, Guru-Disciple relationship is a teamwork also. The two of them are working together to serve a common idea. It's not that only the disciple has service to do to the guru, and the guru only only duties receive the service from the disciple. <laughs> the ultimately, the guru is serving the disciple more than the disciple is serving the guru in one sense, ideally. Although the two of them will have will be giving each other completely to each other. But guru and disciple have this common idea of divine love. So the two of them make this pact, this contract. Okay, let's work together to serve this common idea. Hmm? <clears throat> and of course, someone may say, well, but if the guru is not in topmost devotee, there may be some risk of that the guru may 
and there comes this gold Vaishnava expression falling down, which I don't have a clue what that means. <laughs> the sense that people use it so loosely for anything. No? He ate chocolate, he fell down. No? <laughs> <coughs> he broke one of the four wrecks, he fell down. He, he, he didn't finish the 16 rounds, he fell down. And fell down, fell down, fell down. And for me, just like, that's where you fall down, at least for me, means like you're abandoning the practice with a very, altogether with a very distorted idea of what that practice was for you and insulting and completely dysfunctional. That's falling down. Okay. <laughs> and even in that case, you can recover your honesty and, and go up again, falling upwards, no? as Richard Rowe will say. Because <laughs> sometimes the falling down is kind of a label that you will be caring for, for eternity or something. You, know, you have fell down, okay? <laughs> like, like I remember, I, I was, like in my beginning days in the temple, maybe 20, yeah, that was in 2001 or 2000. I wonder what it was like. <laughs> it was like, and I appreciated that. But he said, sometimes they want to say, sometimes, uh, uh, how did he say? He said, uh, I'm Christian conscious. Sometimes, sometimes they want to say, I'm Christian conscious, and sometimes I fall down. He said, No, I, I, I'm always falling down, and sometimes I'm Christian conscious. No. Like, like trying to be honest, no? like instead of falling down like something that, that's surprising. Yeah, that's surprising that happens sporadically once every weekend or something. <laughs> it's like we are falling. And not to make you over identify I'm falling, bring the whip or something. But to have <laughs> the humility, I, I'm in a fallen condition in so many ways, still being loved unconditionally by Christians that give me so much hope and relief. But I mean, I'm fallen. I mean, I, I generally visit those places quite often. It's not that some sporadic sprinkling that comes once in a lifetime. No? So, so, anyhow, going back to the topic, some might think, oh, but Mr. Guru is not the highest type of person. There may be a risk of falling or, or some slippery chapter or whatever, yes. And I know that we don't like to deal with that risk. We want like full warranty that that will never happen. But also at the same time, that's not what life is about. That's not what love is about. It's like if you marry a person and say, promise you will never fail me ever. It's like, Where's this, where should we sign the divorce papers before getting married? <laughs> <laughs> no? So part of the loving adventure is, I mean, it's, I'm not saying that you as a disciple are already anticipating my guru. Well, I'm not saying that. <laughs> but be careful not to enter into that marriage because it's a type of marriage, guru, disciple. Being in total denial of any of those possibilities. And if that happens, you just like, because scripture itself mentions that. In Krishna Bhajanamrita, the author mentions if your guru, God forbid, again, I'm not desiring this, but if that happens, your guru somehow starts to act in a deviated way. Narahari Sarkar said, you have to go to your guru and tell in the spirit of service to him or her, instruct him, her, go back, please, to the proper path. You gave me so much. I'm so much in great in depth to you. I, I love you so much. But this is not what you taught me over there. You are going against your own teachings. Please, I never thought I would be in this situation trying to remind you of, the, of your own teachings. But 
necessity is the mother of invention. So I'm in this circumstance and in service to you, not defiantly and challenging, because I love you, I'm begging, please return. <laughs> Again, that's, wow, when I read that the first time, I said, wow, I mean, very interesting. There's place for that. I say, wow, when I read it, and then I say, wow, when I had to do that myself with my first book, literally. <laughs> I never thought I would be in that situation. I was like sitting in front of him and saying, The two of us ended crying and so on and so forth. But that was a chapter in service. We are to enter into that chapter also in service. And but even if if, if someone who assisted us as a guru have some lapse or, or even more than that and even became distanced, I will say in those cases, be careful not to be ungrateful either. Don't think, oh, that person was a fake from day one. I didn't learn anything, all was in vain. I've seen so many, unfortunately, what's going to that, again, cynicism, no? Everything was hoax, no? I was in a cult without realizing for the last 25 years that that sticker that you have here. <laughs> no, no. Even if that person had a problem, that connection that you had with that person for a certain period was useful, and it's okay. You have to acknowledge that, and you have to move on with gratitude. That's it. Maximum that person talked to you what not to do. <laughs> if you are not able to see any positive content, which I don't think that's the case, but even if that's so extreme, okay, that person taught me what not to do. Thank you so much for giving me the negative impetus, the negative version. I mean, again, I don't want to enter into the, my unauthorized biography here, but... <laughs> You can be connected with a guru who was genuine for years and eventually ended up being a sexual predator. But was not in the beginning. And it's like, it's complex to accommodate that. Like, what to do with that? <laughs> because sometimes I've heard these type of things. Oh, no, if that happened, means that your guru was always a cheater. And if the guru is a cheater, you were a cheater and you received a cheater guru. No, these types of like one-liners that are... Not very sensitive, I will say, especially if someone is kind of recovering their life coming from that chapter and sounds like, oh, that means you never had a guru and you were not sincere and Krishna sent you a false guru because you were a cheater yourself. Thank you. They'll we are laughing not to cry. Or this idea is if a guru falls, he or she was never a guru. You know, this kind of black and white situation, like it has to be perfect and ideal from day one. If not, it was a complete cheating. That shows more like your lack of nuance and your narrow mindedness of black and white thinking when Krishna consciousness is like multicolor. No, it's not black and white only. So. So yeah, well, say in those cases, you were in particular situation, Krishna sent you the person that you needed at that particular time. Again, it had a purpose, something else happened in between, life moves on, and if you are sincere, you will receive connection with new agents. It's true. That's, that's totally fine. There's no need to deny the connection. There's no need to be ungrateful. And also, there's no need to force myself to remain in a connection that may not be healthy anymore. Mm -hmm. 
So, <clears throat> so that's one thing. And of course, something else to consider, and I'm al almost finishing, yeah, almost one hour. Because someone may ask, well, I don't have the problem because my guru is an Uttam Bhagavad, so I'm totally safe with that, on that side. Of course, again, to begin with, how do you know that? No. I'm not doubting that, but my point is, how can you know that? Because the symptoms of the Uttam Bhagavad are pretty internal. Bhagavatam says what? The Gutambad sees Krishna everywhere and everywhere in Krishna. Everything in Krishna and Krishna in everything. How can you know someone is having that vision? <laughs> it's, it's considerably elusive. And so your shelter is your own sincerity and trusting that Krishna will connect you. But my point is if someone says, I have a connection with an Uttam Bhagavad, but I receive Diksha from that person. Like I'm on the other side of the rainbow. I'm totally safe now. Not necessarily. I mean, you can have your high, the topmost Paramahamsa on planet Earth as your guru, but what you are doing with that connection? You can have all mercy in the world, but what you are doing with that mercy? You have to do something with it. No? Like Srila Siddha Maharaj once said, Krishna is giving us everything, everything we need and more on a golden plate, but he's asking us a little bit of collaboration to accept the gift. But sometimes we so it's hard for us to do that to do to do that like this huh? like this painting by michelangelo that god is like <laughs> <laughs> no? stretching as much as he can and we're on the other side like <laughs> you saw the painting that reminds me of what shula sarah is saying here a little bit of collaboration to accept the gift accept the gift <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not so sure yet. <laughs> Sorry for the sarcasm a little bit, but yeah. So, so much mercy is coming. All the angels, so to say, are raining upon us, but what we are doing that? We may be just not. There's one quote by Srila Bhaktisiddhanta Satsvatakur. Let me share it with you briefly from his Sajan Toshan. He says, Initiation puts a person on the true track and also imparts an initial impulse to go ahead. It cannot, however, keep one going for good unless one chooses to put forth his own voluntary effort. So again, we have received initiation from the topmost Mahabhaga. Great. We celebrate that together with you, but... You have to do your part also. Again, it's a teamwork. It's not that I have this connection with this great personality, that's it. You have to do your part as a disciple. Your guru cannot be a disciple for you. He's already a disciple of, of his, her own guru. <laughs> so yeah, not, not necessarily the, the guru will be or needs to be. I need to see that. Um, Someone who may have read Sri Guru and his grade from Sulasidhar Maharaj may say, but Maharaj, let's bring some Purva Paksha here, some opposing views. Sulasidhar Maharaj says in Sri Guru and his grade that, that the Guru is always Nitya Siddha. He says that. But also he says in other parts of the book that the Guru can be sometimes a Madhya Bhakta. And a Madhya Bhakta is not a Nitya Siddha, I can tell you. <laughs> so how to harmonize those two things? So the idea is that when Srila Siddhartha Maharaj is saying the Guru is always Nitya Siddha, 
and here I enter a little bit more Tory technical expression. He's referring to Samasti Guru. Samasti Guru means the universal principle of the Guru, the agency of, of Guru Tattva, which is represented by different agents. No? Let's speak in those terms. I agency and agents. Police department, policemen, so to say. So gurus need to see eternally perfect, yeah, Samasti Guru. Krishna himself is that original guru. In the Bhagavatam, Krishna is described as Param Guru and also Param Guru Guru, it says in one verse. He's the guru of all the highest gurus. But when we refer to the Vyasti, Vyasti means the individual guru who represents the agency of the guru, Krishna's will. So the Vyasti guru, the individual human being, let's say, not necessarily is an Intisita. Again, if we don't understand this properly, the, the position of guru can become the position of dogma, basically. Because whomever is serving as a guru is an Intisita, therefore is untouchable, is immune to all fault. If you see any fault, you are an offender. If you want to be part of the club, no faults are allowed here. <laughs> and it ends up in, it ends, spirals down into a I mean, very dangerous scenario, to say the least. Mm -hmm. So, again, going back just to conclude to my initial point, all this can happen by this idea of over idealizing, mm -hmm. over expecting also. If you over idealize someone, you will over expect him from that person. So basically today I want to share a few ideas and hopefully some criteria to deal with scenarios so we don't switch back from naivete to cynicism, as I mentioned, no? but can find some, find some middle point of proper discernment. And to normalize, humanize the relationship between guru and disciple, understand it doesn't necessarily mean that the guru has to be the topmost person. The, the guru has to be advanced at least relative to the, the advancement of the disciple. Let's begin with that common sense point, period. And of course, there are exceptional cases of exceptional gurus, of exceptional disciples, like, I don't know, uh, Dhruva Maharaj, he heard like five, 10 minutes of instruction from Narad Muni. And in six, less than six months, he had Darshan of Krishna. Like, wow, <laughs> imagine. Five minutes, Siksha, six months, Sadhana, Hari Darshan. Where can I sign up? <laughs> <laughs> Nowhere. Hmm? Nowhere, exactly. Thank you. Because most of us are not Dhruva Maharaj to begin with, and most of the gurus are not Narad Muni, let's be honest, <laughs> which is okay. Uh -huh. Interestingly, when you say one sign up, Narad Muni in that section of the Bhagavatam in the fourth canto, he's mentioning no one else can do what Dhruva did. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case someone was wondering where to sign up, there's no paper to sign up in this case, no? Extraordinary case, exception to the rule. And so I think if we want to be human and realistic in our approach to the guru-disciple relationship, we have to be careful of not over-idealizing, over-expecting what both guru and disciple have to be offered. Because again, the healthy, we'll continue talking about this tomorrow, but it's very important to keep the difference in mind between the exception and the rule, the norm. The exceptional cases are there, Kijai, we, so we are blessed by that, 
by the norm, the normal <laughs> is what we were probably well meeting in our path in many cases. Now, if, if it, I mean, any system will be mostly useless if it only works when participants are exceptional. <laughs> Let's put it like that. <laughs> no? A system will be mostly useless if it can only work when participants are exceptional. This will work if all of your exceptions to the rule are like, okay, we're living, basically. So systems cannot be developed based on exceptions, basically, but based on norms. So that's why we wanted to share some words trying to normalize the dynamics between guru and disciples. So anyhow, some thoughts I want to share today with you. <clears throat> we have a few min minutes. If there is any question or comments, things that you may like to share. Okay, let's begin here and we go. Thank you, Maharaj, for that. Thank you. Really excellent, expansive, and sensitively approach topic to approach to something so complex. Uh, I was wondering, in our lives, we can have so many people who we see as really important gurus. And so what happens when one may start to feel, how would you advise when one may start to feel like their primary guru in life may be shifting or changing mm. or evolving? Mm. Of course, it's a, a question that I, my, my attempt to remain a radical personalist, I cannot answer specifically to the question because every case will be different. Someone may say, Maharaj, my inspiration with my Diksha Guru is uh, diluted in this chapter. What do you suggest? But I inspire with this other person. But the question is why your inspiration is diluted? You may have a proper reason for that, or you may not have a proper reason for that, and you may need to correct yourself. So you follow my point. So I cannot just like give an absolute answer because each scenario will be diff different. Like <clears throat> sometimes if I hear the voice, okay, I'm no longer inspired by that person. Sometimes we take for granted, oh, that person must be doing something wrong for you not to be inspired with him. But probably that person is super honest and unique and you are not honest. And that's why you are not inspired with his or her honesty because it's challenging you. It's taking you out to places you don't want to go and look. So he's not inspiring me. So sometimes this expression, I'm not inspired, uh, <laughs> or he inspires me, sometimes he's gratifying my, my senses, basically. Yeah. He's confirming my biases. He inspires me a lot. <laughs> he doesn't inspire me. Actually, means he's inviting me to grow and change and acknowledge the thinking. He's not inspiring at all. No. <laughs> and we enter into victim consciousness and play that role. And of course, there will be lots of people who will say, oh, come here, oh, poor of you, he's so bad. So, but of course, if, if there is a genuine situation, again, this situation will be so unique and specific on why that's going on and which are the dynamics. So I can only share a very abstract template. Every case is unique, but at least I will say there is a place for that to happen. It's not like necessarily uh, an offense or a betrayal to the Guru Tattva principle. I mean, that's mentioned in Shastra in many situations where, by Krishna's arrangement, a particular Guru figure comes into a scene at one point in one's trajectory and becomes more prominent. And again, this the, the important point is 
guru, the gurus are not in competition with one another. <laughs> As I always like to say, the role of the guru is to be a servant of the shraddha of the disciple. That's what a guru is. A guru is a servant of the faith of the disciple. So if I'm your guru and I'm serving your faith, and I'm seeing that the way I'm trying to serve you is not nourishing your faith as much as it could, I will start to think, what can I do for your faith to be nourished? It's not that I will think you have a problem because you are not inspired enough with me. No, that's not a, a real guru. A guru will be concerned how I can make your faith flourish even more. If it's not happening with me, let's make the arrangements with someone else. But the point is your faith has to be honored. Shraddha Devi has to be served. It's with me, it's with someone else. That's secondary. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen that many times like that. Many times, unfortunately, I've seen gurus owning the disciples or thinking they own the disciple. Like guru is not an owner of the disciple. <laughs> the guru is a servant of the faith of the disciple. <clears throat> so, so there is place for that to happen. There is place for, for, again, I may be inspired with a new representative, but at the end of the day, is this in one sense, guru is one. It's important to have this non-dual foundation in place. Guru is one, and it expresses itself in a variety of forms, but the guru principle is one same truth. So if it appears from one place or another, I don't want to make it cheap. Oh, guru is one, so I will take here and there. Oh, guru is one more. I'm not saying that in an uncommitted way, but, but that's how it is. So like someone asked one, asks, one time to Srila Siddhartha Maharaj, like, who is more important, Diksha Guru or Siksha Guru? Of course, many times the Diksha Guru will be the main Siksha Guru, but sometimes there is a place for many Siksha Gurus or more than one. That's mentioned in the Bhagavatam, Nahiyaka Shmat Guru, Kyanamsus, Tiramsus, Sukhus, Kalam, Gramaitra, Dviti, Ambagi, Hativayu, Bahudarishri. Since the absolute truth is unlimited, one won't be able to understand that truth only from one particular person. So there is place for compliment. So someone asking who is more important, Diksha or Siksha Guru? Again, like someone going to Prabhupada, who is higher, need to see their son and see them. <laughs> and Silas Yamas gave a very proper like answer. <laughs> he said, the more important guru between the Diksha and the Siksha Guru is the one who is helping you the most. Wow. Period. That's it. The one who is serving your strata, nourishing your... And it, in one part of your traje trajectory, maybe one person in another, other, if it flows organically and sincerely, that's Krishna's arrangement. And that has to be honored and celebrated. Of course, again, if it flows organically and sincerely, I'm not saying here, this is an excuse to force that and to jump from one person to another without any commitment that has nothing to do with that. So that's what I can say from an abstract perspective. Each particular case will be requires personalized treatment, so to say. No? <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> Who else raised hand? Yeah. Hare Krishna Maharaj. Uh, <clears throat> I was uh, just piggybacking on this question. Um, I guess what is uh, has been a question for me is what are we actually seeking from Guru? Because in when, at least I know, sometimes I still look for information. Mm. So then, okay, after some time I realize, okay, information is not enough. Uh, I should look at his 
uh, you know, discipline. Mm. Okay, right? mm. discipline maybe uh, like I don't know, or is it is it like oh the you know the inspiration to serve the mission? But then you know, so like what are we searching from Guru to know that yes, this is the ideal person. Mm. Yeah, good question. Thank you. I mentioned that in my book that I mentioned sometimes we may be a little bit like concerned about uh, where is my guru or what's that my guru must be very qualified. But the first question I have to ask is why I want a guru? Why I'm looking for a guru? So you are asking, even before accepting a guru, I'm, I'm taking the question back to that point. I'm saying, I want a guru. Why? which are your actual motivation to accept a guru. I mean, you have to spend some time there, no? I mean, every one of us, like, and I will say that's the period that, for example, Sanatan Goswami recommends in Hari Bhakti Vilas, live with your guru for a year. Not only to get acquainted with each other, but to get acquainted with yourself and your own motivations in connection with the guru, <laughs> to see what comes up to the surface, <laughs> to see if you're approaching the guru for the right reasons. And of course, sometimes we may realize, oops, I didn't approach my guru for the right reasons to begin with. I'm starting to realize now which were the actual right reasons. And of course, guru is ideally merciful, like Krishna saying the Gita, Chaturvida, Bajantima. I mean, all these messy type of guys come to me with different separate agenda. You know, they want knowledge, they want wealth, they want, they want to stop suffering, they want whatever. So many things. Okay, okay, we have to begin somewhere come with all that stuff and gradually you will get to know what the real game is about <laughs> so sometimes the guru also will realize okay these guys come as disciples as i mentioned before and some of them come with a codependent template some of them come trying to fill up some absent father figure in their lives now, because some people may look for a guru from those places some unresolved emotional trauma from childhood and projecting Okay, he will feel that unconsciously, with a good heart, but unconsciously still carrying that baggage. So the guru has to be expert in acknowledging that, dealing with that, and gradually taking the disciples to, ideally, this is what it means to be a disciple, and to be a guru, and to have a relationship between the two. So I'm saying all this because, again, we can speak about the ideal spirit of inquiry for a disciple, but each disciple will be in a different situation. So in one sense, the reply to your question also may be different to each person. What disciple is to look up for the guru? But I will say, I like always what Srila Siddharmara said, and sorry to refer so many times to him. I mean, I don't have to ask back forgiveness, but <laughs> uh, I like Srila Siddharmara so much, as you already can realize, and especially in Sri Guru and his grace. In this book, he speaks so many interesting things. And he, one of those is, he says, your guru is your own potential appearing in front of you. Wow, mm. first time I read that quote, I was like, <laughs> your guru is your own potential appearing in front of you personified. It's another person who is coming to show you all that you can be. <laughs> through the example, through the, your own potential. That's a big commitment because imagine you are coexisting with your own potential at every moment. <laughs> As we say yesterday, sometimes we may be terrified of our potential. So, so the guru ideally has to embody this personification of divine love and commitment and dedication 
so so yeah we are to to identify with the prospect that the guru embodies basically we are to look up to the guru and say okay in him in her i see myself full blown so to say so i identify with that prospect with the invitation of that prospect and and i enter into that relationship willing to to do the needful to reach that place voluntarily and yes in, in that connection there will be i will look up to my guru's example my guru's teaching uh, and so on and so forth now I, I will be imbibing all that but as the Bhagavatam said, I will concentrate on that. The, the duty of the disciples, among other things, Jignyasu Sri Yodhamam. I mean, these three main verses of the scriptures which speak about Guru and disciple, Tashmat Guru Prabhadita, the Bhagavatam, Tadbidi Pranipatena in the Gita, and Tadbigyan or Tamsaguru Mevabhigachet in the Upanishads, the three of them say basically the same thing, which is very interesting. The three of them describe the qualities of the disciple first, the qualities of the guru then. No? Like implying first, speaking first to the disciple, like, okay, you are looking for a guru, but first be a disciple. No? Because I've heard many people tell me, Maharaj, I've been looking for a guru for the last 45 years, <laughs> and I have not found any. And I was like, I'm like, have you looked for, for the disciple first? Have you looked for yourself as a disciple? Because if you are not going there first, the guru will never appear. Maybe your guru is here, but the disciple has never arrived yet. <laughs> so if me as a disciple has never arrived, I, I, can, I can be surrounded by gurus in every atom. There is no guru, there is no, because there is no disciple. If there is no student, there cannot be a teacher. There is no disciple, there is no guru. So... So these three verses describe, of course, the qualities of the disciple, mostly in terms of surrender or dedication, willingness to sacrifice, and inquiry. We have to be inquiring into the highest possible direction we can. Whatever we may be, I will put it like that. Whatever we are as the disciples in our stage, What's the highest possible direction and deepest possible way I can in direct my inquiry? That's a commitment that the vow we accept as disciples. I mean, to be a disciple is not a joke. It's not a formality. It's not, oh, I have a new name now. <laughs> no? I have a bigger, whatever, Kantimal, whatever. I, I, I received the banana, the, the sacred banana. I, I received some patching and one banana, burn banana. I'm like, save now. No, you sign a contract of committing yourself to inquiring the highest possible direction you can on a daily basis without neurosis, just in case. Sustainable project. So, and that will, that will as, as Rabbi was saying yesterday, that will shift in time. Now, what's the highest possible inquiry today? In a few days, will be different. You will discover, oh, oh. There's a new way to be a disciple. Diksha. Diksha means initiation. And initiation means you are initiating something. It's not over. It's not, oh, I'm already initiated. No, you are starting. Initiation means initiating. Diksha kali bhakta kari atma samarpana When the moment of diksha comes, you make of yourself a full offering, atma samarpana, to Bhagavan. 
So you may be wondering, I received Diksha 25 years ago, and I still did not make myself a full offering to Bhagavan. So do I have Diksha or not? What is that Diksha is a process. Diksha is not a one-act performance. I receive it. I have it. No, no. You're allowed to start the process. So, so I think it's important that we get accustomed to think in these terms. Not like, I'm already a disciple. I already have initiation. I already got it. Control, manipulation, certainty, safety. No, no. It's all a process that is constantly unfolding forever. When you enter into the Lila branch and you hear Krishna's flute, that's another level of Diksha. It is mentioned by our Acharyas. Because the Diksha mantras are connected to Krishna's flute, Gayatri. So when you're in the Lila hearing the, the flute call, the clarion call, that's another layer of Diksha you're receiving yet there. And on a daily basis, the flute call will be different and deeper. So <laughs> Diksha continues going on and on. So, so yeah, I would like to emphasize that point, trying to, as a disciple, I have the commitment of trying to in, direct my inquiries, my, my questions, in the deepest possible way. I hope that helps. Anya. A comment and then a question. Um, so I think one of the things that has made me tentative and nervous about the guru-disciple relationship is maybe this unconscious thought that can come along with it that each person doesn't have access directly to Krishna, that we need someone else um, necessarily to be that intermediary. And, um, sometimes for me that runs me the wrong way. It reminds me of my um, fundamentalist Christian background where um, it was instilling to me that I could not directly commune with God. You know, we needed the pastor to intervene for me. So, um, and then left the church and then became agnostic for many years and did the whole intellectual thing. Then came back to spirituality. So there's still an element of um, distrust that I have with the hierarchy, I suppose. But my question is, um, is it in the Shastra anywhere discussed that Krishna is the ultimate guru of all of us? And that, that is our ultimate goal to have that direct communion with Krishna, regardless of whether we take initiation with like a guru? Hmm. Yeah. Can I read something in that connection? <laughs> yeah. I will clarify it also. Sorry? <laughs> you are such a good student. Page 247, and then we will move to 48. <laughs> Mostly 40, 248. So I'm quoting in 47 so many verses of the Bhagavatam, what Krishna is described as Jagat Guru, uh, for example, Atma Guru, the Guru of the soul, Akila Guru, the Guru of all beings. Uh, if you want, you can see all the quotes later. Jagat Guru, the Guru of the whole universe. Uh, what else? Sarvaloka Guru, Guru of all the planets. Param Guru, the Supreme Guru. Param Guru Guru. No? That's the Guru of all other Gurus. So I'm making this point to make it clear. Krishna is the original Guru. 
So whenever we speak about guru as an individual human being, we are speaking about someone who is representing that original guru who is Krishna. So Krishna is guru. I think that's an important point to make. And then let me read this section. It says just the beginning of page 248. The unusual but plausible case of someone accepting God as his main guru is further confirmed by Srila Prabhupada in his commentary to these verses, what he says, Bhagavatam 8.24.50, in case you don't believe me. <laughs> he says that either the Supreme Lord or his representative can become guru. And then he says, 8.24.52, the Lord, being situated in everyone's heart, can give one complete instructions on going back to Godhead. And then in his commentary on the very last verse of this section, 8.24.52, Srila Prabhupada further elaborates on this possibility. So I'll read this commentary and share a few words. Prabhupada says, Sometimes it is argued that people do not know who is a spiritual master and that finding a spiritual master from whom to get enlightenment is in regard to the destination of life is very difficult. To answer all these questions, King Satyabrat shows us the way to accept the Supreme Personality of Godhead as the real spiritual master. The Supreme Lord has given full directions in Bhagavad Gita about how to deal with everything in this material world and how to return home back to Godhead. Therefore, one should not be misled by so-called gurus who are rascals and fools. <laughs> Rather, one should directly see the Supreme Personality of Godhead as the guru or instructor. So, of course, by reading this, I'm not canceling Parampara, and I'm saying, all of you who have gurus, you have been cheated, sorry. No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm, we are trying to widen the perspectives and show that there can be... I mean, this section is from Satyabrata Muni in the Bhagavatam, and he prays to Krishna in many verses as the guru. You are the guru, you are my guru, you are my guru. So that's in the Bhagavatam, just in case. Of course, the Bhagavatam also establishes the idea of accepting a spiritual master, this is a long topic, but in brief, what I can say is, of course, accepting a guru doesn't mean that, okay, that person stands in between me and God in every sense, and I cannot have any particular direct connection with God. Because, again, God is in our heart. God is the Chaitya Guru. And, of course, we can say, yeah, God is in the heart and the Chaitya Guru, but we may mistake his inner voice by our with our mind's voice, and that's why we need the Chaitya Guru appearing in front of us as mentions is mentioned Chaitanya Chaitanya to make it clear what's going on I understand the point I mean sometimes so many voices are around us and so many people say God has told me to kill you all no <laughs> <laughs> sorry for the extreme example but I mean that's a, a case and you can find so many in between that extreme but I received direct revelation that I am the Messiah and I will do whatever no so those things can happen <laughs> But also I will say that I personally feel that sometimes in our community it's not emphasized enough uh, the possibility of connecting with God in our heart as our guru also. And sometimes it's, in my opinion, Swami Padmanabha's opinion, too overemphasized that the guru is, the human individual guru needs always to interpret for you what God wants from you. And, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. I mean, 
because at the same time you don't have your guru just next to you every single moment of your life and and you are expected to see krishna's presence and catch his teaching so many moments that your guru is not there like gurudev is is this correct is this one of you cannot just like call and write like 30 300 times per day to confirm like is this krishna is my mind is this krishna is my... so the guru of course is there as a crucial figure to help you uh, in your relationship with Krishna, in one sense, no? So the Guru is not so much telling you love me and have faith in me and it all ends up in me. No? But the Guru is a facilitator in the connection between the disciple and, and, and Krishna. No? So, so it should be, because you mentioned this idea of hierarchy, and I understand, and I know that that sometimes can be the case, like a too much too much verticality in, in the not only hierarchy, like sometimes a monarchy or something. <laughs> but I personally don't like too much to think in those terms. For me, the relationship between guru and disciple is not so much um, a vertical hierarchy. Of course, there is a hierarchy. I won't treat my guru like, hey, buddy, how are you doing? But, but there's more like a circular collaboration or spiral, if you will, no? keeps spending. Because the two of us, guru disciple, are serving the same idea from their particular perspectives. Of course, guru, father and son are different, but they are to become friends in the project. That's what Rupa Goswami said, Vishram Bena Guru Siva. He said the spirit of serving the guru should be one of intimate trust and confidence, like a type of friendship. The relationship should mature, mature in, in that direction, conversion, friendship. And friendship is not so much vertical hierarchy. It's more like, again, I'm not equal with my guru, but there is a type of friendship there. So it's not such a like heavy, hard, vertical hierarchy, at least in, in my opinion. I, I know that model has been implemented a lot, but I don't think it's very sustainable. <laughs> so there has to be a lot of affection. And if there is affection, the guru is seen again as... as it's a great personality that I love, but it's a very deep friend that is such an example, such an elder, like the classical elder figure in the village, so to say, like a person that everyone goes and is venerable and has so much experience and so much affection, and, and he's a facilitator. Again, it's not that it ends up in me, I'm your owner, uh, you cannot talk to God separately, it's all throughout my custom house or something. <laughs> Uh, so I don't know if that helps a little bit to like, there's much more to say in that connection, but anyhow, that's another seminar retreat. So we already have different topics for the next five years or something. Was, <laughs> yeah, I really, um, I really appreciated the context in which you referred to Krishna as human. And, his, and also guru is human my jaw like actually dropped it was like really deep so i really appreciate that and another thing i appreciate is um the some emphasis i gleaned on understanding the principle of sri guru and letting that be the lens to view guru and there's a lot of appreciation that comes from comes to the comes for the guru by seeing the lens by which we're viewing them. Uh, I really appreciated that. And it made me 
think of um, Deva Madhavaru one time, Anvyasa Puja, he glorified Ardhra Maharaj through um, the Guruvastakam prayers. And that was really brought to life both the prayer, but also my guru by being able to see my guru in, in that prayer. And then, like you said, like seeing our own potential, then that's really, I really appreciate that. Um, and I have a question, two <laughs> questions, but I'll ask one and maybe, you know, one, my, one question, which I think is um, something that maybe other people are experiencing too or have experienced because um, I really appreciate the, um, when you're saying initiation, um, it's a beginning that it's not that our faith kind of ends where it began, like, you know, like a baptism, like now you're in, but it's like a beginning. Um, at the same time, there's another side to that that I haven't appreciated. And in my own experience, I haven't experienced it. I don't really see it in others that it's still, I've also heard that your, your spiritual life hasn't really begun mm. until you're initiated. Mm. And that was never my experience. It's not something I see, but somehow that goes around. I don't know if there's Shastra for that. Or, yeah. Yeah. And I remember feeling that weight, mm. but at the same time, I, I didn't feel like my spiritual life hadn't begun yet mm. until then, but I did feel the gravity of that. Mm. So can you help clarify that Prabhupada saying that and how we can understand exactly what that means? <laughs> yeah, thank you for the question. So, yeah, so much trauma to heal, right? <laughs> so, yeah, of course, on one side we have like, on an experiential level, it, I think it makes no sense for any of us to say, before I receive initiation, I had no spiritual life whatsoever. Because if you had no spiritual life, how you ended up being initiated? <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Yeah, it's I like the quote is it's really off putting, actually. <laughs> bring bring more disturbance to the yeah. table. <laughs> so this is what needs to be clarified. Yeah. Parva says the connection with the spiritual master is called initiation from the date. <laughs> of initiation by the spiritual master, the connection between Krishna and a person cultivating Krishna consciousness is established. Without initiation by a bona fide spiritual master, the actual connection with Krishna consciousness is never performed. Mm -hmm. like, okay. And now you have what I read a few minutes ago from Prabhupada also, and you have to, okay. <laughs> <laughs> And we find many state, statements like that. I mean, in my first book, I kind of second part of my book is basically doing that, putting on the scale like, okay, if he said that, the same person said Because sometimes I think, okay, one acharya say this, another acharya say that, how to harmonize. That's one thing. Like, what would one, the same acharya says to different things? Rupa Goswami says in Lago Bhagavatam that the way to solve that is not to cherry pick the statement you are more comfortable with. You have to harmonize. You have to understand what's going on here, what's the background, what's the context, which is the audience. So I will say that in that case, Sila Prabhupada is really pounding the post and making an, an emphasis on the importance of initiation. And, and it speaks in a way that it sounds like without this, you have nothing. But I, I, I don't feel that he's believing that in that sense. It's just making, and he will many times speak like, 
absolutely, in absolute, absolutistically, so to say, to overemphasize something that is important. Again, we're not downplaying that, but we have to understand the mood and the, the way of speaking, especially when you see him saying other things like the ones I read here. It's not that he said only that thing always. Because again, there is preliminary stages to Diksha. I mean, Rupa Goswami, when he mentions the 64 Andas of Bhakti, Adho Guru Padashraya, no? and then comes Sri Krishna Diksadi Sikshana, Vishram Bena Guru Seva, and so on and so forth. But, so it's not that before Diksha there is nothing, because again, how there will be Diksha if there was nothing before? It's not that I was just you know, going to Las Vegas and a casino and suddenly I got Diksha and my spiritual life began. No? <laughs> I was initiated by a machine, coin machine or something like that. <laughs> there is some free, or like sometimes I've heard about this saying in terms of, okay, before initiation, you take shelter in a guru. I, I've heard, no, at least in Iskand, sometimes they use that expression, taking shelter in someone. And also, and I, I'm okay with expressions, okay, but the point is the implications that you may think Something what was telling me the other day, no, Maharaj, I'm off put by this statement because they will ask you, have you taken shelter already? Like it sounds, you have, if you have not taken shelter in someone, you have not taken shelter at all. And the expression of taking shelter, I mean, it's become so limited to that particular thing. But if you take shelter in a particular guru, it means that you have taken shelter before that in Krishna, in the practice itself, on some mm -hmm. level or another. So... My point is sometimes the language in itself creates a certain pattern of thoughts. Mm -hmm. So if we say, okay, your diksha, you started, and you start to think like that, and to conceive things like, and I've seen so many devotees also falling into that idea. Okay, till I got initiation, nothing is going on. Nothing is going on. And the problem is that when they get initiation, I think everything is happening now. <laughs> yeah, everything, I'm done. <laughs> like Deva Mada, I think, was, okay, I got there. I can reach my, I can get my cloud, cloud up, cloud down, okay, <laughs> I can take rest. That's not like that, no? So, so yeah, I will say like that, no? Prabhupada tried to make that emphatic point, but I mean, to be honest, let's be honest, if you want to take that from Prabhupada, before diction, nothing is going on. You tell me when Prabhupada got diction. He was five years old, 10 years old, one day after meeting his guru, how old he was? Approach. How many time, How how much time did pass since he met his guru till he received diksha? So, you tell me. <laughs> now all those ten years he was not practicing. He was totally disconnected. Nothing was going on. I don't think so. <laughs> so. The lila button, that's a dangerous one. We, we have our own keyword of, of buttons. Lila button, you have the achintya button sometimes. When you, someone asks you something, you don't know what to reply. You say achintya. It's achintya. Inconceivable. It's inconceivable. Yeah. Don't think about it. <laughs> Just inconceivable. Just listen to me. Don't think yeah, about yeah. it. Don't read Padmanamara's first book about the topic. It's inconceivable. <laughs> Watch read, out. Read my book. <laughs> read my book. <laughs> it's only one. Anything. It's one page book. Says so inconceivable. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I wanted to ask about the use because I know of like Leela can be used as kind of like as a dismissive word, like, oh, we don't really understand, so that's Leela. But this, so I, I'd like to unpack that word a bit because it is a good word. Like there's Krishna Leela, <laughs> like we meditate on the pastimes of Krishna. And at the same time, we do like there's Prabhupada Leelamrita because it's very Prabhupada's life is very relishable, and the, the life of Sri Guru is very relishable. So, um, I mean, at the same time, I guess in the context of, you know, Nitya Siddha, Sadhana or whatever, I guess that's where the word Leela kind of becomes, it's used in the sense to, it could be used, I understand it could be used in, in order to, like, impose, like, that they were always perfect or something. It's a whitewashing. It's a whitewashing word. At the same time, um, I mean, it has its place. So I need, I would like some help unpacking like that. Mm. If you don't, that's not a clear question. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I get the point. Uh, of course, I don't have any problem with using the word Lila. <laughs> But yeah, I, I mainly pointed to how much this word or so many other words for that matter can be like abused, not used. Now, as you mentioned, whitewashing and evasiveness and over justification. And I've heard literally, and you may just faint, but some gurus who have molested yeah. underage people that, oh, that was his Madhurya Lila. So I'm offering himself in service for his pleasures to serve him. That's those type of things. Seriously, I, I mean, someone's telling me that very seriously. I'm, I'm like, I want to jump off this window right now. Give him the touch of praying. Yeah, he's blessed him, give him a mercy with his, the contact with the pure devotee is always purifying. That's Lila. This type of thing that is like, that's cultish. That's not Lila. <laughs> so regarding unpacking and discerning about that, of course, it may require examples and specific cases and situations, but and it all depends, again, what's going on. Who is the guru? What's the standing of the person? Uh, again, what, what, what do we understand by Lila also? I mean, technically speaking, the word Lila is mostly applied to Krishna and his associates and the interaction of divine love between them. That's basically... Lila, non-dual play, so to say. They are playing on the foundation of non-dual consciousness and total transcendence, a celebratory movement. Lila is kind of the opposite of karma. Karma is like for like forced labor, labor or something. You know? By the strength of the gunas, I'm doing this, doing that, karma. Lila means they are doing things, but not because they have to, because they have some emptiness, but out of fullness they celebrate that's a very different movement uh, i'm sorry if i'm going into that direction but i think it's important because we use loosely the terms lila what's lila what's it was even the word pastime is a little bit like complex to understand right past pastime i mean we use it but what's the implications of pastime so but but the idea is basically again lila means karma means i'm empty <clears throat> and I'm running, trying to fill my emptiness. I have an existential void of this size. <laughs> and then sometimes we find someone in the, in the world and feel, oh, 
I love that person, but actually you project your, the size of your existential void and see that person feeling exactly that void, something like that. So you are moving and running out of emptiness. And Lila means you are so full that that fullness starts to overflow you. And it starts to sprinkle. And, this, and you cannot sit quietly. In, in karma, in fruitive action, you cannot sit quietly because... So many desires you are running here and there, up and down, Rajas, Tamas, Sattva. Maybe if you become peaceful, you can sit quiet in meditation, Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. But when you are full of love, you cannot sit peaceful in meditation. You need to wake up and start to dance and celebrate. That was Mahaprabhu. Mahaprabhu was not like... He was rolling on the ground, grabbing his head on the wall and crying and rolling and celebrating. So Lila has to do with the celebratory movement. You are so filled that you cannot but move and celebrate. So someone who acts from that place of complete feel fulfillment, okay, we can talk about Lila. No, that was Lila. No, that was, but again, not, not necessarily every guru is in that situation. So we have to watch out in, in the sense of not to, again, over-absolutize and over-lilized <laughs> Something that doesn't necessarily be that. So, again, then you have to go to each particular case and, and see accordingly. Okay, is that Lila? Is not Lila? Why do I think it's a Lila? Why do I have a need to make everything Lila? <laughs> because I don't want to see the truth, probably. I don't want to take the trouble of discerning and trying to see, like, oh, probably this is not Lila. This is not absolute. But also, this may be a mild mistake. Again, like the example of Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta. He mispronounced a word. Oh, Lila. No, no, Lila. He mispronounced a word. That's it. It's okay. Oh, Prabhupada didn't know who is the Yuga, but Tara Treta Yuga. Lila. It's not Lila. Don't put that in the Lila Amrita. <laughs> Just he doesn't know. That's it. It's okay. Don't try to make everything Lilesque, Lila-like. I mean... <laughs> Again, the question is, what takes, what makes you try to make everything lila? It's just detail. He doesn't know this. It's a detail. It doesn't compromise his his lila. <laughs> so, some thoughts. Again, in each case should be specific, particular. And in some cases, you really cannot see that as lila. It's the case I told you, like abuse, molestation, lila. No, that's not lila. It's clear that there's, that's not Lila. In some cases, it may not be clear. I understand. Some stages we may be like, hmm, hmm. May take time again. Is it, is it legal, illegal? What's going on here? It's Lila or legal, illegal, whatever. <laughs> and I understand there may be a period of bewilderment for the disciples. Sometimes, if in the case of the guru may be failing, deviating on something. It's difficult because you have the person in a certain position, pedestal, and suddenly something unbecoming happens, and you cannot just immediately switch. Or, okay, that's not transcendental. That's something that needs it. You, you probably try to justify that back into the pedestal, <laughs> but after some time you realize this is not working. No, there's something that tells me this shouldn't be put in the pedestal. So where does it belong and what to do with that? So that's a whole separate journey unto itself. <laughs> More hands raised, but I don't know how much time you have. You are the this uh, lunch is being offered now, right?
Maybe one more question. There are like four hands raised. We have only time for one question. So you decide among yourselves, be kind with one another. Bro, okay. It seems to me that there's almost this um, exploitative relationship on the part of the seeker in almost any religious circle. And that in toxic circles, the danger would be that we go in the door and check our brain at the door and sign up for whatever's being doled out in lieu of taking responsibility and being culpable for the decisions that we are supposed to be making in our own spiritual journey in our own lives. And having been a part of many different spiritual paths, um, it's really refreshing to be on this one and hear you speak to that. It's encouraging and uplifting, and I'm so grateful. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm trying to make something out of my own traumatic experiences. <laughs> Hopefully you can be safe from that and take some lessons so you don't have to learn the hard way as I have to in the last 25 years. <laughs> I mean, I'm healing my own. So hopefully the extension of that, if that helps someone, I, it's my good fortune. But yeah, first I'm concerned with my own, not in a selfish way, because just because I know if, if I do not heal my own chapters, I mean, what can I do for others? It's just, uh, I will just impose in my own unresolved trauma. So, so yeah. Just leave <laughs> <laughs> So generous. <laughs> Join it. He's in that spirit. Lila, Lila. Okay, that was a short one, so we'll go one more. He was raising the hand. What's your name? Remind me. Sai. Sorry? Sai. Sai. Please. I was uh, you were saying about it's you need to know what you are looking for first. Then a guru is to typically guide you along the path versus, you know, you don't just go shopping for gurus or knowing what you're even looking for. But then if you if you know what you're looking for and go to gurus but they are you know, we know like Arjuna and Krishna, Arjuna was in a certain state of helplessness and Krishna as a guru was able to lift him from that state, clarify his questions in a very logical, sequential manner, and take him along the path where in the end he was convinced and he was confident and he was no longer in that helpless state. So what if that that the guru is there is a disconnect that they have, you know the guru offers something but that is not answering or or really addressing what you're seeking and then it doesn't Solve anything and it doesn't move you along. So, and then you keep going with the same thing to many, 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 and then asking the same questions, and and it doesn't resolve. And and so then 
then yeah, so how do you proceed? Hmm. Again, this is a question that has to be answered more specifically according to, to each particular case. So going back to my first reply to Prem Vilas, because one disciple can go to many gurus asking the same question, and the person that disciple will feel is, I'm not yet satisfied. I don't know. I don't know why that person is not satisfied. Satisfied because it can be like you are receiving the actual answers, but you are not willing to accept them. And that's why you're not satisfied. Or you are sincerely inquiring until now you have not met someone who can really respond to that sincere inquiry. I don't know. Again, each case will be unique, but both things can happen. I mean, one can ask the same question to many people and you can be receiving the proper answer, but maybe we already figure out in our mind which will be that answer, which house that answer should be. I'm, again, I'm, I'm just giving ideas. I'm not saying this is your case or anyone's case. I'm just throwing potential situations. Sometimes it happens. Some people ask questions, but they already figure out what should be my answer to their question. I'm like, why, why the hell you're asking the question? <laughs> I mean, if you are smart enough to just have you figure that out, I mean, you don't need me even, you just need me to confirm your bias, probably. And you're using and exploiting me as a confirmation tool or something like that. That's not how it works, no? So, in fact, the, 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 the duty of the guru in one sense is to unsettle the disciple. In the sense, the guru, the disciple may ask a question or may have an idea about something, and the guru has to create further doubt in the disciple. But doubt in a healthy way, doubt in the sense of uncertainty. A disciple may think, okay, now that I hear from Gurudev, I know what Brahma Vimohan Lila is about. And the Guru then will explain further layers of the Lila, so the disciple concludes, I don't have an idea what Brahma Vimohan Lila is about. I thought I knew, and now I realize I don't know. Jai Gurudev. <laughs> no? You follow? So sometimes the Guru, instead of giving answers, will create further questions. That's also another point I write in my book, that sometimes we are addicted to answers. We want, we want to be, bring closure, but the guru's duty is to bring disclosure. <laughs> the guru's duty is to create new questions, not just to give answers. Sometimes the guru will create a new question, I will tell you, stay with the question long enough till the question itself evolves into the answer. And we may be like, no? Give me the, the answer, clear answer now. No? Stay with the question for some time. Be disturbed for a while. <laughs> Go to that dark space. No? So, so I'm saying all the things in terms of that. We as disciples may go with questions, but already without bad intention, but somehow already idealize or expect the answer will be in this way. The answer has to be like that. And probably... If that happens, we are going with from the wrong place to ask the question. Asking questions is a whole art. It's not so easy. It's not just, I have questions, I'm pretty smart, I have lots of questions. From which place you're asking? Let's begin there. How willing you are to, to, to acknowledge that your question was incorrect or, or that you don't need to ask that question yet. Or, or that you needed to ask that question five years ago, now you have to ask this question. Or you have to ask that question in 25 years, not yet. Okay. And so many possibilities are there. 
or although I say the achintya button and I was joking about that, in some cases the answer will be achintya. There's place also for that. <laughs> Prabhupada did that a lot. He said, stop thinking. But there's place for stop thinking and also there's places think about that. So it's not, again, one size fits all. It's very unique, not only to each person, but to the stage of each person and to the moment of each person. The guru has to be really empathic in, in, in replying from that place, basically. There's no like universal formula. Like you ask me anything and I will tell you, just chant and be happy. That's it. I mean, probably most of you will be frustrated with that answer. I mean, the, the, the one-liner is true, chant and be happy, but between the chant and the be happy, there is a parenthesis with a thousand considerations. <laughs> and we need to be talking, we are talking about those things now. So we can chant and be happy considering, or like they might like to say, chant and be honest. That one was like that? Yeah. Be honest, that's the important thing. Be happy. It may, I bring down, he was saying, no? Sometimes we okay, I want to be happy. It's not about being happy. Mm -hmm. no. In one sense. No. Don't be addicted to happiness. Because this is about I, I like what Viktor Frankl says in his Man in Search of Meaning. He says that actually and I like that a lot. He said the purpose of life is not happiness. The meaning of life is purpose, to find purpose even in suffering. Because you can be happy and find no purpose in that. And you become totally stagnated in a comfort zone. But you can be suffering a lot, like he did in Auschwitz. So he, 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 can, he walked the talk <laughs> and find so much purpose in the worst possible situation you're in. And that gives your life meaning. So the, the meaning of life is not happiness, it's purpose. Whether in happiness or in suffering. <laughs> And both of them will be in eternity. <laughs> it's in their own way. But they are so full of purpose that that suffering is not unbecoming. It's totally desirable. Anyhow, I'm shifting to Auschwitz and other directions here now. So, but some points in connection to, to your question, which again, I can only reply to that generally. I cannot address it individually, specifically, because I don't know the details of, of any particular case. But... But yeah, we should be open to see how much sincerely we are inquiring from which place and to have trust. I mean, Krishna is in our hearts. Don't forget that one. So if we are sincerely inquiring about something, he will make the arrangement for that to happen. And if it's not happening, probably we need to go through that no? like threshold period where answers are not coming and we are invited to be patient with mystery. <laughs> and coexist with uncertainty for some time. Okay. Thanks so much to all of you. And if there are more points or things, we can continue talking. Tomorrow we have a second talk, and also we can continue talking personally, informally these days as well. Sriman Mahaprabhu ki jai, Sri Sri Gornitinanda ki jai, Sri Haninam Sankirtan ki jai, Samavindvapta Vinda ki jai, Gopramananda Hevo, Vanchakalpataruja Kripasindu Hevo, Chapati Tanam Pavane Pio Vaishnavi Pinamonam, Nanta Koti Vaishnavrinda ki jai, Gopati Hevo.